Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's very finest of radio stations. The US's war drums, never long silent, have started their beating again, this time with Iran firmly in the hot seat. Trump's withdrawal from the Obama nuclear deal and his appointment of John Bolton among a bevy of other securocrats has led to commentators expecting expecting sorry a hardened pose on Iran and one that's been increasingly obvious in the past weeks. Less is said, largely I think because less is known about Iran itself, and that's true not just on the left but in mainstream news reporting as well, which has very little insightful to say about the country. Uh, so joining me today to try to remedy some of that uh, ignorance is Eskandar Sadeh Bourgezi, who teaches political theory at Goldsmith, so he is also the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. That book is out from Cambridge University Press, and it's a real accomplishment, I think. Thanks uh, so much. It's a really fascinating demonstration, actually, of, of how rich and complex dissidents uh, in Iran can be and the way in which ideas take on new and interesting shapes when they're articulated in new political contexts. I found it enormously illuminating. Um, so I think the way for us to begin is for me just to or, or is to just get a sense of the evolution of the contemporary uh, Iranian state and you know so so I'll give a, a kind of broad historical sketch of the, of the kind that I think the left uh, prefers when it thinks about Iran right so you have the Pahlavi monarchy, which is established in a British-supported coup in the 20s. Uh, Musadek is uh, appointed PM in 51. Uh, he nationalises the oil, sends uh, the British, uh, most of the administrators, in fact, were Scottish, I think, uh, around the bend with the nationalisation, right? Um, they're furious about it. Uh, the CIA supports a coup against Musadek in, in 53. The Shah's uh, modernization reforms and autocracy uh, draw opposition. Mid seventies oil shock uh, has uh, you know unemployment effects consequences. There there are strikes and demonstrations. The Shah flees. Uh, a popular cleric Khomeini uh, returns. The republican and religious nature of the state is confirmed by popular referendum. A series of purges and consolidations then follows. So for for, for left wing. Accounts, for, and that's more detailed than most left-wing accounts <laughs> often are, actually. Uh, for for left-wing accounts, the role of imperial powers and the role of resources is really key. So the big events are like the imperial discovery of hydrocarbon resources, um, you know, Mossadegh's removal in 53, because that's British and the Americans, yeah. um, and then the popular discontent that's, that's harnessed by Khomeini in, in 79. An account of, of kind of the religious dimensions of, this, of the state are, are, are not really there very often. It's kind of treated as yeah. this sort of uh, thing that happens on top of the really fundamental things. Now, how far is, is that potted history accurate? Is, is it missing things? Um, well, I have a lot of sympathy for that, uh, for that potted history. I think there's obviously a lot to that. But I mean, we can also go a little bit further back. We can go to the end of the 19th century. So um, in an event which is often called the Tobacco Revolt, um, this was an event, um, was basically a response, a sort of a, a mass response by um, Iranians, which was actually initiated uh, to a large extent by both the bazaar and um, probably the leading clerical authority of the time uh, by the name of uh, Mirza Shirazi. Um, and basically this was in response to a concession which was given to um, uh, a British subject, uh, uh, Major Talbot, and this is known as the Talbot Concession. Um, and this basically gave this uh, British subject, and in fact Britain itself, um, a, uh, a monopoly on the growth and uh, production and sale of tobacco. Um, and just to, to pick up on, what you're, on your, well, essentially your point, where you're talking about so where does sort of religious, uh, sort of where does the religious authority, where does the religious forces come in here? Obviously, the the issue of a, fatwa, a famous fatwa by Mirza Shirazi at this time um, had such an effect that even um, basically a prohibition on tobacco um, called Nemi Haram um, had such an effect that it actually um, uh, made its way to the to the court and to the to the Haram actually of Nasruddin Shah himself and his own um, and his wives was actually stop using sort of the tobacco uh, pipe so I mean and sort of in the late 19th century we see a really kind of very weak Iranian state so ruled by the Qajar monarchy mm -hmm. um, and it's sort of often referred to as sort of the age of the sort of the concession hunters, and it was really sort of an older version, you could even say, of um, 
um, sort of yeah, structural adjustment programs in a way. <laughs> in a sense, you have these people, you have these very wealthy people from the ruling class in Britain who would basically be searching out concessions from foreign leaders. They would then be given these concessions, often by this profoundly weak state that was being obviously encroached upon by um, Imperial Russia to the north and Britain um, from the south. Um, often from popular pressure, the monarchy would then, so the Shah at the time, would then be forced to, often Nasruddin Shah actually would be forced to renege on these mm. And then the Brit- and Britain would step in and say, okay, now that you're reneging, we're going to have to pay the, this massive indemnity. And you're basically uh, in this form of you know, a debt peonage in mm-hmm, a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would obviously um, put a, a, a damp on any sort of uh, bid to strengthen the central. Um, say, and that obviously changes... Uh, with the coming to power of the Pahlavis, uh, obviously authoritarian modernization, probably, you know, very sort of strong emphasis on state building, on secularism, um, sort of quashing the clergy, as it were, you know, um, secularizing um, sort of courts and the education system. Um, and then obviously there, this, like you said, this sort of uh, often a sort of a peak in this story is the coup against Mohammed Mossadegh. Mohammed Mossadegh obviously uh, came from a, a Qajar aristocratic background, but was educated in Switzerland, had a legal uh, education and is really sort of one of the probably key figures in the 20th century insofar as uh, what we see is sort of this, the emergence of anti-colonial nationalism uh, calls for self-determination the right for nations to determine you know um, sort of non-European nations to, to determine their own fates uh, and control their own um, resources and this was intolerable both to the Labour government at the time that even drew up a plan to actually invade Abadan in the southwest of Iran. Uh, and obviously, subsequently, um, Churchill and Eden uh, come to power, mm. and then along with the Eisenhower, initially Truman's in power, then, then later with the Eisenhower administration, decide to overthrow him and basically install the Shah who had fled off his, off his own sort of off his own accord um, and then then we saw sort of the rise of this uh, profoundly um, yeah a powerful uh, state sort of which is all driven um, growth a massive emphasis on sort of military hardware I mean anyone sort of following the rise of Mohammed bin Salman today I mean can look to the case of uh, Mahreza Pahlavi and mm. there are lots of sort of uh, resonances there um, and as you said I mean um, we were just talking about it before I mean not many despite the fact that Khomeini comes to public attention in the early 60s and sent into exile, um, not many people on the left really, I think, understood the the, the real power um, of um, sort of, I guess, uh, political Islam. But it wasn't obviously just political Islam because obviously Khomeini's mission was also profoundly anti-critical of Israel, critical of the role of the United States. I mean, the reason why he comes to the fore in the first place is because he's, in essence, um, criticising what he takes to be a new series of capitulations mm-hmm. uh, favourable to the United States and the United States aren't given the various sort of exemptions from uh, accountability under Iranian law. Um, and that's what really brings him to attention. And then obviously, but the, but the, but the, the Western left, for the most part, um, didn't really catch on to um, to the ism. And as we were sort of saying, Fred Halliday wrote a book sort of just um, before the revolution where he didn't see the revolution coming and he didn't really see um, Islamist uh, mm. political forces at all. Um, um, but we can, yeah, we can explore yeah. some of these other issues about the, the Iranian I mean, left like, as well. I, I, I guess one of, one of the, 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 the other factors here, or maybe the, the, another... Uh, thing when looking at this history, which which I think I think you have to take it as a whole, right? You have to take it from say 1891, the um, uh, 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 tobacco uh, uprising, whatever uh, prohibition, um, and and you have also this kind of you, you know there or there is a tendency in some historical analysis to look at. Uh, or, or the, to, 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 to find something maybe unusual about Iran uh, or, 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 or singular in that it has actually the establishment of representative democracy actually pretty early on, um, you know, comparatively given it, like in terms of kind of colonial administration, you know, so you have uh, the constitutional revolution and then that, it, you know, it's abortive and, you know, a return to a kind of sort of despotic form of rule. But you have, you know, over and over again, I think in the course of, of, of 20th century history in Iran, actually assertions of popular power to a degree right and this is this is true in uh you know uh you know the the repulsion of the soviets for instance uh you have it in 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 the nationalization uh of of the oil industry and you have it again i think uh to an extent in 79 so how, how far is that a reasonable way of looking at it that, that there is because because so the tendency sometimes is to see these as uprisings that are then uh you know uh uh foiled somehow right that there is uh that there's some kind of uh 
regressive force, sometimes American imperialism and sometimes kind of uh, 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 reactionary clerical uh, politics. Uh, h- how far is that a reasonable way of looking? I think, in particular, then uh, the question is how how far is that a reasonable way of looking at the 1979. Uh, 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 revolution. Well, I mean, often, I mean, the, the only um, issue with that is that sometimes it's sort of um, assimilating to a kind of a Whiggish history mm. where you have this sort of unfurling of freedom and then eventually emancipation will fall on our um, laps as opposed <laughs> to looking at these sort of repeated bouts of. Yeah, popular um, contestation, resistance, like you said, in the uh, constitutional revolution, sort of tried very much um, through force of um, arms, popular committees, which were um, where both sort of... um, sort of Iranian socialists who were very much under the influence of sort of uh, the um, various intellectual currents and tend- political tendencies within the Caucasus um, sort of organise and mobilise to basically uh, to limit the Shah's mm. um, power just as clerics were absolutely very important in actually theorising what it means to actually limit absolutist um, absolutist power of the monarch. So, um, and what we see throughout this history are, you know, various, you know, instantiations or various articulations of, yeah, popular um, power, whether these ultimately will result in this sort of, you know, um, this moment of uh, a massive, which many sort of Iranian liberal Democrats actually hope for, and also there's that tendency on the left, I mean, but we do see a very much accumulative set of experiences. We do see Iranians obviously engaging and reading that history mm. and taking and learning from it. So, I mean, um, Iranians can't but look to the example of Mohammad Mossadegh. I mean, uh, they can't but look for the sort of the, the, that moment, the national, the nationalist movement, um, and they can't but look to the case of the um, the Iranian Revolution, where of course. Um, millions of people mobilized to overthrow the most powerful uh, sort of US sort of ally in the whole regions and, and, and it was a power that was at one point spending more per capita on its military than China mm. uh, and also um, was key to American strategy in the region I mean like the Nixon's twin uh, pillar um, policy I mean the Shah was absolutely uh, indispensable to that because the Americans were preoccupied with Vietnam and you know the Johnson administration mm. and subsequently obviously the Nixon administration so um, what the what that sort of sort of uh, exemplary kind of illustration of popular power is still very much alive, and it continues to kind of animate the the Islamic Republic and obviously resistance to um, the more kind of authoritarian and uh, sort of retrograde elements within it. Sort of resistance to those uh, continue to animate popular struggles till this day, mm. um, without a doubt. There's a there's a there's a kind of interesting argument made in in a book. It's a very very famous book, I think, um, called uh, Iranian Intellectuals in the West. Um, which is basically, you know, it, it's. Uh, I don't, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, and it, it talks about the the, the um, you know the clerical classes as if they're kind of organic intellectuals, right? So that they they emerge from kind of the popular classes. Um, how far is, is is how far is that an accurate way of reading um, reading this stuff? And 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 does and how far would you say that that uh, say something like. Khomeini's quite distinctive philosophy of government, so he develops something called the governance of the jurist, um, which I, I think is like very, very distinctive. Um, h- how far, how far is that? Understandable in that in in that frame, right? Um, so historically, I mean, at least since uh, probably the late the mid to late nineteenth century, you could say that because the Shia clergy was essentially dependent on tithes, mm. uh, um, which is often which is referred to as the Sahmeh Imam, um, uh, would be um, sort of the share which you give to the hidden Imam, the twelfth Imam in twelve uh, Shiism. So it had like an independent fiscal. Base and it and over time you basically it has it can articulate its own sort of independent basis of religious authority, um, and that's really the base of authority which allows the tobacco revolt to happen. It's the basis of a, um, of authority during the constitutional revolution when Ahun Khorasani, who's a famous one of the most important kind of constitutional clerics in the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, um, vehemently defends constitutionalism and obviously rallies and people rally to that. It's the same kind of uh, that kind of base of being linked to the people. People linked to their demands, linked to their needs, uh, and responding to them in turn, um, uh, as well as obviously um, guiding them, which which one can sort of draw. There, there is a there is a relationship there. Mm. Um, this obviously with. Um, 
obviously Khomeini's theory is a is a is a massive break uh, with um, Shiite political theory um, as a whole, which really, um, for the most part, said you couldn't establish a, um, a sacred mm. or um, or a religiously legitimate um, political authority um, in the absence of the um, of the hidden imam, who, whenever he returns, then obviously he will reestablish justice and a just order um, in the world. Um, so Khomeini like absolutely breaks with this, and obviously once you actually have the institutionalization of the Islamic Republic, where basically you know uh, they take over. Um, the state um, and initially there's a situation of kind of dual power which we'll, I'm, I'm sure our friends will um, <laughs> will, will be f- quite familiar with it when you have a revolutionary council but then obviously there's a, a successive process whereby during the 1980s they really just take hold of the entirety of the state so um, often sort of religious critics or even orthodox sort of Shiite critics of the Iranian state sometimes will say that um, really taking over the state um, severed that sort of um, that sort of organic relationship which previously did exist between the clergy and the people and where the people would often look um, to the clergy to sort of be moral leaders. Um. Let's just talk a little bit just for people who are unfamiliar about the structure, just the political structure of the Iranian state at the moment, right? So, Because it's, it's not always clear, I think, to, to people yeah. how, how it's actually made it up be the relationship between <laughs> the Prime Minister and um, you know, Khamenei now and then the role of the IRGC as well, which I think is important. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you can do that in a kind of potted... Um, well, I mean, I can... Uh, well. I can try and actually just sort of lay out some of the institutions. Obviously, this has changed. It's yeah. kind of, it is a diachronic process. I mean, so like in Khomeini's time, the state has one kind of configuration. And then after 1989, that obviously evolves and changes and transforms. Um, but yeah, obviously, one of the most, the most important figure is obviously the guardian jurist. Uh, who is obviously um, a clerical um, figure who's often often referred to as sort of the leader of the revolution. Um, at the same time, you have a, a, a sort of civilian authority. Previously, in, up to 1989, you had a prime minister and a president. Mm. Then this was then the then the prime minister's office was abolished in 1989, and now you just have a presidential office, which is directly elected. Uh, at the same time, you have a parliament, the Majlis, which again is directly elected. Um, you also have an assembly of experts, mm. which um, is supposed, in principle, is meant to be supervising and electing um, the leader. That is um, not really the case in um, practice. Um, there's also an expediency council, which... Uh, when, for instance, uh, actually, no, there's a guardian council, I'll say first. The guardian council is a body of clerics that ensure that um, legislation is consonant with Islamic law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's an expediency council, which was formed in 1989 to basically um, settle disputes between the guardian council, the clerical body with mm-hmm. six other jurists, and the majlis, which is directly elected. So what we see, obviously, um, enshrined in the Iranian state are um, various sort of um, different loci of um, legitimacy, religious and mm, popular, mm, and this is, you know, Islamic Republic. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and whether that's entirely coherent or what, you know, sort of the various um, consequences of um, those various clashes which come are themselves um, interesting and problematic and profound, can be profoundly um, frustrating. Um, as far as the Revolutionary Guard is concerned, the Revolutionary Guard was initially... Um, really a series of disorganized um, militias um, that was systematically routinized after the, particularly, I mean, just before the invasion of Iraq, but particularly with the invasion of Iraq. I mean, and it's easy to kind of uh, then put Iran in conversation with various other citizens' armies Mm -hmm. and whatnot, like in France and and elsewhere. But after following the invasion uh, of uh, Iran by Iraq, um, it becomes um, routinized into, um, obviously, uh, a significant military force. Um, and also one of its other sort of roles is to protect the revolution because uh, Khomeini had a lot of distrust with respect to the military, which was seen mm-hmm. to be very much uh, one of the kind of... Um, the the main basis of um, sort of monarchical uh, right, pro, pro, right. Pro, monarchical sentiment, um, and obviously since 1989, um, the Revolutionary Guard was then brought in to do a lot of the reconstruction of Iran, which was obviously you know. Um, half a million deaths and casualties. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the sort of the, the battle of cities where cities were absolutely, just absolutely flattened and destroyed. Um, a lot of sort of uh, Iran's infrastructure was absolutely destroyed. So, I mean, um, the Revolutionary Guard was brought in to partake in the reconstruction 
um, of the uh, of the country, and then and then has really steadily mutated into a sort of military corporate, sort mm. of corporate and corporatist uh, entity, which um, is increasingly sort of interfering also in civilian mm. affairs. Mm. So there is a constant tension there as well. So there's a tension with the clerics, a tension on the popular level, and expressions of populist and uh, popular sort of sentiments and expression, and at the same time um, the, the sort of the military mm. element as well. I mean, I, I do find that the, the, this kind of you know, political structure of Islamic republicanism kind of fascinating, right? And it, it, you know, in some ways, it seems to me to to account for you know so, some of some of the hostility. So, so there is this kind of um, this this rubric that's used a lot in in Western journalism about the oh, it's the dichotomy between Sunni and Shia. This explains the entirety of the Middle East. I mean, I think significantly also the difference between a republic and a monarchy is also um, also I think at play there, right? And uh, but it, so it interests me that this question of of how those two, you know, Islamic and Republic sit together, which I think is obviously uh, intention sometimes. Your your book begins, in fact, with an account of Akajari's um, this kind of amazing speech in 2002, which articulates this, this incredibly strong um, anti-clerical uh, position, right? That, that it's, it's um, you know, it, it articulates a kind of Islamic humanism. It's also, you know, perhaps comprehensible as a kind of Islamic Protestantism. This is an issue that I think recurs actually throughout throughout the, the your accounts of, of these kind of dissidents. But that trajectory, I think, is very interesting, right? These people who were part of the revolution in 79 and then st- start rethinking about the kind of the political trajectory of Iran, I think, especially after the, the war. Um, tell us a bit about, about those dissidents. Okay, so basically, um, well, many of the people who would go on to make to make up the reform movement in 1997 uh, through to 2005, and obviously continue to uh, keep it alive, um, many of them were actually um, were Islamists. Um, they were very, they were often young men and women who were, you know, very you know very hopeful, um, you know, very much. Um, Sort of uh, invested in a sort of a utopia, a utopian imaginary. They wanted to transform Iran into a more just, independent um, sort of society. And yeah, many of them obviously profoundly critical of American imperialism. They were in support of social justice and the redistribution of wealth. All these sorts of things. But they supported um, Ayatollah Khomeini because they thought and they believed strongly that he um, stood for those um, values. And um, what we see throughout the decade of the 1980s, they obviously support um, his uh, Consolidation of power and his sort of latent consolidation of power. They fight in the war. They, def- you know, they, they. Um, Arajari, who you mentioned, actually lost a leg uh, in the course of that uh, war. And um, what we see, I mean, and it's quite interesting. I, I mean, it's hard to find a lot of parallels, but within the space of probably eight to nine years, we see a profound disillusionment sinking uh, in, and uh, an attempt to really reevaluate. Um, where uh, the Islamic Republic is going, what it ultimately stands for, and whether it's and and why it hasn't managed to fulfil those aspirations, um, and that's obviously a key question which they begin to grapple in, as uh, grapple with as many of them sort of you know pushed out of um, power. So that many of them enter sort of the intellectual cultural sphere, and then they start actually really uh, thinking through uh, many of these issues. And the interesting thing about um, and the particular I guess the uh, particularly interesting thing about many of them is that. Obviously, the Iranian Revolution happened at sort of the at the back end of this sort of anti-colonial moment, the moments of decolonization. So really, at the at the end, and, and more often than not, it's, it's it's sort of framed not as an anti-colonial sort of revolution. It's refra- it's framed as a Islamist revival, mm-hmm. and it fits very well with you know nat- uh, narratives of the clash of civilizations. But um, the, the the revolution itself can be definitely framed in those terms. Similarly, with the reform movement, it happens at the moment where we see the collapse of you know the Soviet Union, uh, Western liberal uh, capital is triumphant. There is sort of no alternative whatsoever. And so we see sort of many of these um, intellectuals sort of coming to terms and thinking through and thinking with um, both kind of Soviet dissidents, but obviously more often than not, actually sort of Cold War liberal thinkers. So people like um, Karl Popper and Hayek and um, Raymond Aron and many people who we would be quite um, surprised. And often, you know, I, when people talk to me, they say, oh, why would Iranians care about these rather passe, think- passe thinkers? But um, they served a very sort of concrete uh, purpose and goal in, the, in their own sort of attempt to rethink sort of the future of the Iranian state and particularly to criticise their own political adversaries at mm-hmm. that time. And these are also these are people who went from ideological legitimators in, in some sense, yeah. right, to, yeah. to, like, yeah. to, to critics. I mean, how, how, you know, how, how common is, is, is that trajectory... 
limited to a relatively constrained intellectual class? Does it reflect something that that's kind of a broader dissatisfaction? Um, so just so, just so, just so you can also just assess like the radicality of the shift. I mean, many of these um, young men and women who were sort of what is often referred to as the Islamic left, who then became reformists. Mm. I mean, they were involved in the takeover and the hostage taking of the American embassy. I mean, um, and then later on, they would be subsequently imprisoned. Some of the people like Ibrahim Asghar and Abbas Abdi and others for saying that you know Iran should reestablish relations with the United mm. States. So there's this radical, um, this radical um, shift, as it were. So I mean. I do think on one level this brand of reformism is quite pe- peculiar to um, uh, elements with the, who, who were themselves part of the political class, saw themselves as being such and had a claim on the state. But that being said, I mean, I do think, I mean, amongst sort of Iranian leftists as well, sort of many sort of went the way of kind of, you know, Eurocommunism to kind of social democracy and had a very kind of, um, you could say, rose-tinted mm-hmm. um, understanding of uh, of capitalism and tried to reconcile themselves to that moment, which is understandable. That particular conjunctures. I do think it's part of a broader uh, trend. And as we were sort of saying earlier, I mean, Iran itself was very much afflicted by a kind of a left melancholia. Mm. And, and Islamic reformists are part, were part of that, as are, sort of were, as were many Iranian like radical leftists, mm. like Marx, Marxist leftists. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to come to the kind of trajectory of the Iranian left in, in a minute. And just, just maybe on that, be worth hearing. There's a, there's a really interesting account in, in your book of the thought of uh, uh, Abdul Karim Sarush who who has this kind of like adopts the kind of posture of kind of Cold War liberalism towards ideology yeah. right and and this becomes actually quite quite a thoroughgoing you know importation of of, of like uh, you know really anti like deeply anti-communist yeah uh, but this guy is a kind he's a, a reformer and he's he's one of these kind of dissidents yeah. and so it's, it's, I'm just curious about how that develops in the in the context of, of the Islamic Republic this kind of anti-ideology right. Right. position well it, I mean with um, Abdul Karim Sarush his um, his history is itself um, interesting and to some extent distinct from uh, some of the other Others who like um, Argerian, who were very, very deeply, um, you could say, were very held to certain left ideals, really mm. around sort of economy and anti-imperialism and all these sorts of things. Um, Surish himself, I mean, he studied actually in um, Chelsea College, which is now part of, which was then incorporated into King's uh, King's College, London, and he sort of there sort of studied the philosophy of science and uh, Popper and whatnot. And he actually, after the revolution, and this is very much part of uh, state building following the revolution, he participated in the sort of ideological battle battles with Iranian Marxists um, and sort of, you know, um, decrying um, the ills of and the, and the folly of uh, materialism, mm. Marxist materialism, why it's always incoherent, uh, criticizing the notion of Marxism as a science, you know, Popper's, you know, open society's enemies, sort of reprising that sort of critique. But, it, but uh, and he was actually a member of the Council of Cultural Revolution, which was charged with actually overhauling uh, the Iranian universities. Um, and Islamicizing the curriculum, um, but then again, we see uh, he he himself sort of becomes afflicted and uh, falls apart. This sort of same sort of uh, degree of disillusionment. He comes complete. He becomes very disillusioned. He then he writes sort of a, a series of seminal articles called the Expansion and Contraction of the Sharia, which is basically very very simply he's about historicizing our knowledge of mm. Sharia and Islamic um, law, which then sort of gets him into some sort of hot water. And then he himself is very much well being sort of you could say the leading uh, religious intellectual of the late 80s and 90s. Um, He's increasingly... the target of sort of vigilante sort of attack, but he was also very key in sort of organising uh, sort of the intellectual wing of the reform movement and sort of really giving them the ability to what we you know what Gramsci calls sort of uh, yeah hegemony and that sort of that, that moral leadership yeah. and giving them the intellectual and ideological tools with which to actually speak and he very much uh, you know was conversant in all of the sort of the the, the discourses around yeah the rule of law civil society mm. uh, d- democratic accountability human rights why these are all compatible with is, is Islam and, and whatnot, which um, which are very much, um, you know, will be familiar to, you know, the 90s, the sort of the triumph of all this sort of global civil society and whatnot. Um, like Iranian, like Abdul Karim Sarush and those who were around him were um, very effective actually in disseminating those both at an intellectual but also through the popular press. I mean, they uh, allies of his took charge of key newspapers at this time in the late 90s, which were, just, which were reaching millions of people. And, you know, to the point where falsifiability of problem would become like an everyday 
day part of you know people will be using that in the street in taxis you know just, just for a moment pause on like the, the improbability for a British person with like an intellectual culture whereby millions of people are reading about proper preparing for survivability it's it's uh, it's one of the things actually that, that I think comes through in reading about Iran is actually that there is actually still a very very strong very vital uh, intellectual culture however marked by melancholia and however marked by you know negotiations with with with, with, with an authoritarian state is, is actually really very striking and that you know, else, yeah. um, I, I, I think you know I, I, I want to get a sense of what the trajectory of the so we have the, this kind of uh, Islamic left this kind of reformist left uh, the, the, there is also a kind of communist and a Marxist tradition uh, in Iran and it experiences uh, you know effectively a terror in, you know after the revolution period of consolidation um, it, 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 can you just Tell us a little bit about how uh, that kind of that part of the left participated in, in that revolution in seventy nine. What the, the the trajectory has been since? Sure. Um, so, I mean, it has. A, I mean, I think we need to go back again. It's <laughs> not sorry, but when we go back to the constitutional revolution, it's present very much as I mentioned. But particularly um, following the um, the British and Russian occupation of Iran in nineteen forty one, we see the emergence of the Tudor Party, mm-hmm. which was really a mass uh, a mass um, party, um, you know, socialist uh, party, um, and had you know. Uh, thousands upon thousands of members, had huge reach and influence in major unions, could actually mobilize masses of people um, in Abadan, in the uh, in the oil industry, and was really, um, you know, loathed and detested and hated by the British, like really hated. Um, but they had a huge, huge influence. I mean, literally any sort of um, intellectual of credibility that you, you know, from that period was a member mm-hmm. at one point or another. There is then again a period of disillusionment, but it's really then uh, post-46, but then in 53, uh, when the Shah's then reinstalled and then... Um, Essentially, the Savak is established. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where you have the, the secret police. Yeah, the secret, the secret police of, uh, of the Pahlavi regime. Uh, then you really just see the complete decapitation uh, of. Uh, the Tudor Party, mm. uh, which was still operating despite being made legal in 1949, was still very, very active uh, um, culturally, uh, politically, in many ways. Um, yeah, it was absolutely decapitated, um, and then really through the it's through the 60s and 70s that we see the rise obviously following cuba and whatnot the rise of um armed struggle in iran by groups like the fadayana khalq and the mujahideen khalq um uh, and armed struggle is very much you could say the the the, the lingua franca of the day particularly in the global south uh, and uh, and also because the shah had just cut off any sort of avenue for political contestation so there are obviously lots of pamphlets by well-known iranian leftists who theorize subsequently when by the time of the revolution the iranian left is profoundly um weak I mean, many of them have long been in exile. They don't really have a good appreciation of the dynamics inside the country. Uh, many of the the the, sort of the the leading lights, people like Bijan Jazani, who's absolutely one of the most brilliant sort of minds uh, of the left that Iran had. He was, he was sort of shot on on a hill behind Evin Prison in 1975. I mean, they're absolutely destroyed. So mm-hmm. while there is a, a profound interest in the left, there's a lot of interest, and there's a lot of sort of young people who are being drawn to it in 79 and 80. Um, it doesn't really have the infrastructure. It doesn't have the infrastructure to compete with the clergy who have been, um, who have obviously been repressed as well, but could still be active through uh, various sort of Hosseinias mm-hmm. and 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 and, uh, and uh, mosques, and could still actually organise on a on a on a relatively uh, serious level, and obviously had links to the bazaar. The left really couldn't compete, and what ends up happening with a large part of the left, not all of the left, but a, probably the most significant part of it, like the Tudor Party and the majority faction of the Fadi, how they end up supporting. Um, obviously, um, Khomeini is very much part of this nationalist bourgeoisie. Um, anti-imperialism is obviously absolutely key and essential and has to be prioritized everything else. Um, and they end up themselves getting... Um, yeah, um, uprooted, deracinated, mm. and uh, now there's really not much by way of actually a, a organisational presence. But many of them have left, in, have left, obviously fled for exile, or they were killed in purges, um, and. But there still is very much a kind of an intellectual culture 
uh, which survived in different ways. Um, and there is obviously, just apart from that, like a real deep interest in various intellectuals here, like from the mm. Frankfurt School through to Althusser and Polanskis and all these sorts of things. And these are, you know, always translated and read and even discussed in uh, Iran's broadsheets. But as an, in terms of organisational presence, it's very limited, and obviously, um, it's very difficult for them to organise in a meaningful way. So there are obviously students today who are. Um, very much, you could say, of the left, um, anti-imperialist, very critical also of what they take to be various neoliberal reforms which are occurring inside Iran, uh, also very critical in uh, and, uh, and acting in support of like, women's rights, women's empowerment, these sorts of things. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, they're relatively uh, marginal and they're quite easily um, repressed. And so the, the, the way in which um, sort of strands of reformism, there's a Kamrava uh, uh, talks about uh, you know, there are these, stra- these various strands like there's a conservative religious reforming right, so this is one of the things that's actually kind of most interesting to me sometimes, you have people like um, Montazeri who's this, who, who's going to be the successor to Khomeini and then he says, you know, well maybe maybe shouldn't have a secret police, <laughs> it's so violent and brutal and repressive, uh, and then he, he finds himself under house arrest, but exactly. he's, he's from a very, like, a very, very conservative, uh, you know religiously conservative yes. uh, background and then you have kind of the, these liberalising reformists that, that we've talked about, and then you have like maybe these kind of secular like these people who repeat the kind of this refrain of, of you know, if only Iran had a functioning civil society, blah blah etc et et um, is, is, is that a reasonable way of thinking about these kind of these strands of reformists, or does it miss something? Uh, um, I kind of, I mean, it depends what you want to do. So, I mean, um, I think when you when it, these sort of typologies have this issue, have this problem where um, when you use reform, when it has a quite specific meaning and um, context in the in Iran, um, then anyone who wants to change anything in the slightest and becomes a reformist. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, um, this is why often people mistakenly, in my view, refer to Hassan Rouhani as a reformist. I mean, he's definitely to, there to change things. He wants to modernize Iran's economy. He probably does want to do a political openness, but he doesn't come from that reformist mm-hmm. fold, which emerged um, like after 1989 uh, and, um, and comes out of a particular constellation of political forces, which is like we were talking about the Islamic um, left. Obviously, that doesn't mean that people like, and obviously Montezeri himself became the figure of, you could say, the reformist in the sense of the leading religious authority and, and the sort of father in many ways of the um, green movement. And his ideas had also like a, had a remarkable impact as well on uh, on reformists. I mean, because he essentially reaches the conclusion quite late on that um, the the sort of the, the guardian jurist should be directly elected and doesn't even necessarily have to be a cleric. I mean, mm-hmm. it could be someone with a, with a very uh, thorough knowledge of Islamic law but yeah I mean there's lots of different groups which are striving uh, to change their society but I think reformist itself has a quite specific Eslar Talab in mm. Persian has a quite specific uh, meaning and context and often obviously in um, the western coverage because they're not very familiar with the various political forces which are jockeying they're kind of anyone who wants to talk to the west is somehow a reformist which is not necessarily the case because Ahmadinejad wanted to talk yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to the west and you could call him a reformist so he actually got rid of you know subsidies on, on energy and lots of other things and did lots of other significant reforms, some definitely for the worse and some were really terrible and some and some you need to kind of actually take seriously and see why they resonated with people. He's a very curious figure actually, he's sort of fascinating somewhere. and now on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> Colin Kaepernick, he's a, he's a big fan of him and Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to like spend just a, a couple of minutes on, on, on two things. Like one is, um, and actually you know, Ahmadinejad ties quite interestingly into some of it, um, the question of Iran's foreign relations, right? And so, so it's kind of immediate periphery, um, which is not necessarily a very friendly one, um, and and uh, and and that you know and, and the deal, the Obama deal, the nuclear deal, yeah. which is now um, in tatters and uh, a source of increasing tension. How, how significant was that, and how, how far was that uh, you know an expected direction for Iranian foreign policy to travel? Um, well, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of impetus, both popular and amongst the elite, to speak with the you know, United States for a long, long time. Um, I think there is a lot of dubiousness, and rightfully so, simply because um, pretty much more often than not, when Iran has had a reformist uh, a president or someone who's looking to her for an opening or some kind of um, detente, uh, Iran has been um, clobbered. So, I mean, probably one of the most best-known ones is when, obviously, George... Um, 
George W. Bush, um, you know, denounced Iran as part of the Axis of Evil when we had uh, when Iran had Mohammad Khatami as his president, who was calling for a dialogue of civilization, mm-hmm. and actually, you know, a very cultivated man. I mean, levels uh, um, sort of famously coined the term dialogue of civilizations, critiquing Samuel Huntington's notion of that there is inevitable clash. Um, and obviously, Iran was, uh, and not just that. Actually, I mean, the, the actual the, there's another component to it that Iran actually uh, helped the United States uh, with its. Uh, invasion of Afghanistan and actually helped mobilize or at least told its, its allies in the Northern Alliance to cooperate in overthrowing the Taliban. And then obviously then Iran is subsequently um, denounced. So this is like a really profound um, distrust, which obviously has historical roots, the fact that, you know, the United States were opposed in the queue, then it actually supported a dictator for for almost two decades, uh, very, you know, and um, and its repressive apparatus, and then subsequently has either sanctioned Iran or has uh, been determined to isolate it and contain it, mm. in scare quotes. Um, so, I mean, there is a fair degree of skepticism, obviously, the, and then the deal was a significant breakthrough. I think it, it was sort of the, you know, a major breakthrough to see two um, foreign ministers, you know, the Secretary of State John Kerry and obviously um, Javad Zarif speaking very jovially, getting along and actually, um, you know, forging a deal that um, satisfied uh, American demands. Um, it shut off any possibility of Iran uh, building a bomb. And apart from that, I mean, we need to say that one Iran um, rejected that it ever had any such intent. And not it was a signature of the NT. NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which um, obviously means that Iran is monitored and uh, and actually has the right to peaceful um, nuclear energy. So in essence, I mean, it's a very important deal. It symbolized more than sort of a non-proliferation regime. It symbolized actually a watershed moment whereby um, sort of there had been, um, the ice had been broken and Iran could actually potentially be reintegrated into uh, the global economy, be seen as part of, you know, the, the world of nations and cease to be sort of referred to in this old school sort of colonial language as we're hearing today as uh, you know, abnormal nation mm-hmm. and the rest of it. So it signified, I mean, so much more than simply just a non-proliferation treaty. And I remember it vividly. I just remember so many uh, people, friends and family, you know, in the streets and were absolutely um, overjoyed. And obviously um, by 2016, uh, with Donald Trump um, elected, um, uh, and it was very clear. What, I mean, Donald Trump tells you what he's going to do, and people don't want to believe him. But I, yeah. uh, in the campaign uh, trail, he was very clear. I'm going to. This is the worst deal in history, and I'm going to absolutely destroy it. And he's gone about obviously doing that and manufacturing an absolutely unnecessary uh, crisis. It, I suppose the, the, the flip side of this, and it's something that's become visible just in the last couple of days, um, with the, these oil tankers uh, being stopped. So they're, they're, you know, there was a story in. in uh, the New York Times just a couple of days ago about uh, tankers disappearing off kind of uh, uh, trackers when they entered the Strait of Hormuz and then kind of reappearing somewhere else. So they, they were seen not to break um, uh, sanctions on oil. Um, it, I, I guess so. This role of hydrocarbon in the economy and this role of the oil fields and the gas fields obviously been, you know, part of American motivation. It was part of British motivation. Um, you know, it was. There's a, a you know Lord Curzon f- furious, uh, like you know that the, the, the Iranians would be so impudent as to want to you know own their, their own resources. So, so this is a long, long story, and the long, long story of sanctions as well, right? So, is, I think British people don't know very much about the blockade. Right? Sure. This is a, sure. 1951. Um, you know, after after oil is nationalised, it really. You know, intended to bring Iran to its knees through yeah. suffering, like very, very obvious kind of acts yeah. of collective punishment, as I think sanctions are today. That there's a line from uh, Jalal Ali Ahmad: uh, "Every oil derrick a spike impaling the land." Uh, it's kind of amazing, uh, amazing line, which I really, really like. And um, th- these these kind of foreign populations were here, like, and, and um, so what role does you know oil and hydrocarbon play in the kind of political imaginary? Because there is this problem as well, right? That you have you know, uh, this kind of uh, jurisprudential regime emerges, which has to deal with a modern state and a modern extractive state as well, which is not necessarily terribly experienced in doing. So, so how, how does it play into kind of the, the, the shape of politics in Iran and, and how, how, do, how, is, how are these resources thought of? Um, well, I mean, it, it really obviously depends on which arm of the state, I guess, you're going to ask. But I mean, on a, in the broader scheme of things, I think it's obviously seen as absolutely, you know, integral to Iranian sort of self-determination um, to be able to use those resources. And I think, you know, um, Iranians themselves, and obviously the Iranian states are far from... Um, 
are far from sort of naive uh, about sort of the Western sort of ambitions and aims uh, with respect. But I mean, but there also has been plenty of sort of um, willingness to cooperate and work with obviously um, uh, Western oil companies, the Chinese, etc. Um, but I think you know, there, is a, there is actually a genuine problem. And obviously, there's always debates about Dutch disease and Iranian dependence on oil. And Iran has obviously been struggling for many, many, many years. I mean, you know, since since uh, since uh, the beginning of the 20th century uh, with the question of oil and its effect on sort of Iranian sort of uh, domestic production, all these other things. Uh, but I mean, one of the problems, I mean, there's, there's also lots of good critiques of this sort of rentier theory mm-hmm. as well, which often does neglect the fact that, which I think is actually in many respects more crucial, um, is the role of both of Britain, but then subsequently the United States in really systematically de-developing Iran. One, it doesn't actually allow it to develop its, mm-hmm. um, its resources. It doesn't even give it access to, for instance, environmentally friendly technologies, because um, obviously Iran is also facing um, environmental degradation, mm-hmm. air pollution, all these things, it, it prohibits it from that. Um, um, and obviously sanctions and sort of the, the, the sort of this the sort of the, the the goal to really just absolutely strangle Iran's um, economy is basically leaving it to uh, basically bleeding billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of dollars which could be using for developing uh, that country, its resources, and so this even stretches to sort of the civil aviation industry, where you know part of the the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, was um, to give access uh, to give Iran access to um, sort of civilian airplane parts, because there's been a long, long um, period where these were Iran embargoed and Iran didn't have any access, and it's not unheard of for civilian planes to just you know just to crash. So I mean, this whole idea that um, Trump or Britain or whatnot um, could care less about Iranian civilians, obviously, is just just uh, is propaganda more than it is anything else. Um, so even sort of civilian airplane, airplane parts, like Iran couldn't buy. Um, and part of the deal, the sweet, a key swing of the deal was actually to allow Iran to buy planes from Airbus and Boeing and actually and buy these parts. And Trump, one of the first things he set about doing was to, to destroy those Boeing and, Air, and Airbus deals, um, which he did. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a, this question of how Iran is sort of constantly under assault. It's encircled by um, sanctions, which, you know, it's banking sector, it's central bank. I mean, you, it's almost impossible to get money out of the country. I mean, um, to make a simple transaction. I mean, this is why no business can actually can set up in Iran. It's actually, like I said, it's systematically um, de-development. And it even affects, you know, medical supplies, um, food prices. I mean, so many different things. And obviously, when Brian Hook, who's sort of the special representative for Iran in the Trump administration, was asked, are you going to give like an explicit exemption for medicine? He said, no. Um, because obviously a big issue is also with the sanctions is that there's the issue of secondary sanctions because obviously it's not so much that the United States is maybe directly sanctioning medicine but no company which obviously you no know, which deals with sort of uh, um, um, in medicine and actually uh, pharmaceutical research and what it's not going to deal with Iran because it's very worried that it's um, any transaction with Iran is going to be um, they're going to be fine and receive and then actually be the subject to punitive um, measures and this even affects academic research like a friend of mine couldn't even hire um, a researcher to review certain papers in an archive you know for a mere like five hundred dollars mm. because um, because of this and her uh, sort of uh, university administration actually went berserk over it and uh, so I mean this it literally affects everybody's uh, life from the, and, and obviously, the most vulnerable are the ones who are suffering. Because I mean, as we've seen, um, sort of housing and medicine, we see a bit, you know, this have skyrocketed, like mm. at least twenty percent. And as we see, sort of the the sort of this um, degrowth, as it were, but not in a, in a good or productive <laughs> sense of the Iranian economy, it's going to be probably uh, reach six or several percent in twenty nineteen. Right. Which and is, so this know. is this is something that will have longer term consequences. I know it's something that I think um, that I think was a visible fear during. Um, you know, the, the uh, Ahmadinejad's tenure that actually kind of economic shocks will pass through and cause civil unrest, et cetera, et cetera, whatever. Um, and obviously, <laughs> obviously, there's a, you know, there's, there's I think, a kind of a, a fear that emerges, right? Like, it's, it's not for nothing that, like, the 1979 revolution followed on the back of, like, it's not only, but there was a significant, uh, you know, consequence of, of, of you know, global oil uh, prices tanking. You know, there, there was a significant shock there. You had a price slump under Ahmadinejad. You know, there was a, a, 
you know, some significant ballot box stuffing, for instance, to yeah. ensure the kind of yeah, you know, the, the the regime uh, remains stable. So it, it does seem to me to be a perverse thing if you you know don't take these people seriously when they say they care about the Iranian people. <laughs> but it seems to me a perverse thing to you know to, to support sanctions if you're going to if you're going to do that. Of course. I guess you know it's sort of you know twelve minutes left or so on the show. Yeah. I want to talk a bit about you know just just the way in which. The ideas about politics sort of percolate through through Iranian culture, and you know, in one sense, it's a question that I, I was left with while, while reading your book. And it's a question I think about a lot, um, which which is to do with like how intellectuals understand you know the, the roots of political authority, um, and where therefore kind of political change can come from, how it can be like legitimately undertaken. Um, and obviously, I, you know, I said at the start of the show that, that there are some kind of Iranian exiles who, who, who often who often talk about you know the clerical establishment as, as being like the bar to Iran's participation in, in capitalist modernity. Um, you, you share, I think, with me an interest in political theology, right? And so, yeah. so well, um, when, when when European political theorists talk about political theology, they tend to talk about it in two ways. One is this kind of um, you know. Uh, uh, Kantorovich writes this book called *The King's Two Bodies*, yep. where political theology is like effectively like a metaphysical foundation for political authority. Right? It's quite simple, right? You know, the king is from God, and therefore the king, you know, is the fount or basis of sovereignty. Um, so it's a legitimation exercise. And then there's a tradition from Schmidt, who who you quote at the beginning of your book, which is obviously quite a dicey tradition, right? Which has some some kind of pretty dodgy people involved in it, including Schmidt himself. Um, but it jumps off from, from a remark of his that, that that is basically that that all political concepts are kind of secularized theological ones. So that opens like a whole it, within Western political thought, like a whole kind of uh, field of sort of homologies between uh, politics and theology. But it's it's interesting in one sense, right? Because the Schmittian remark. You know, as, as it gets interpreted, separates like the political and the sacred. Right? Um, that's not necessarily something that's true in Iran in the same way, or is it? You know, so how does you know? So, so we have these two senses, right? That, that politics operates as a kind of secularized theology. You also have like a, a concept of the the theological authorizing the political in some sense, right? Like that it's it's ground and basis. Yeah. yeah. And how, do, do, that there seems to me to be less less of a clear divide in Iranian thinking between these two, right? Just as a bit, right. as, as a consequence. Well, I mean, like Iran has. Like, I mean, this is. I mean, it is a really kind of important and uh, complex discussion. So I think, like you said, on the one hand, there's a sort of Schmittian notion that uh, all political concepts are revolving around the state are somehow um, secularized um, religious ones. Um, um, and also in the case of Iran, it is the fact that there's also just the the, the the ontological fact of revelation and just like revelation is something with which we need to actually um, contend. So one of the probably the key, one key divide, one key divide or one debate is whether, you know, that is actually indeed the case. Revelation, revelation is something that we need to actually come to terms with and there's a binding force which it basically imposes upon us. Or like the reformers would say, essentially is that no, um, all we have are our various sort of interpretations of uh, revelation um, and this is essentially human fallible uh, knowledge and subject to you know the various vicissitudes which uh, which come with human uh, fallibility and so one of the big sort of I guess um, sort of contests or one of the big battles intellectual battles between you could say um, so he's unreconstructed um, you could say yeah theocrats in Iran and on, on the one hand um, even though there are you know some of them are, are much more sophisticated and we have like a whole tradition of Islamic Heideggerianism and mm. whatnot as well which <laughs> I won't get into but uh, and on the other hand those who are saying no I mean really um, sovereignty is something which is only imminent to various constitutional norms and we, we have certain uh, procedures which we reach through consensus and these obviously um, decide uh, make the key political um, sort of decisions but there's also like another component to this which is um, which I, which sort of which uh, another figure and it was sort of a well-known sort of reformist sort of um, strate um, sort of strategic thinker he's also really just generally quite a brilliant individual by the name of Said Hajarian in his and he's a coming from the reformist um, side of things and he basically undertakes a really interesting analysis of Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, famous fatwa of 1988 where he basically where, where Khomeini in that famously sort of um, decrees that 
um, the state in the name of sort of expediency and the public good can actually abrogate sort of the primary ordinances of the Sharia. So we can actually abrogate, you know, you, you know if you're going to Hajj and various other things, if, if, if the state deems it in, in, in its own um, interest, expediency. Obviously, there's various kind of semantic ways, ways really the interest of the, the regime, which mm. I have lots of problems with, or, or the, public, uh, the public good. And what Hajarian argues in this is saying that sort of Khomeini, what he does, he actually abolishes, uh, this is like a radical move into modernity from, from Hajarian's perspective, insofar as what Khomeini ends up doing is abolishing the that sort of long-standing long dichotomy between Islamic law on the one hand and customary law on the other. He basically unifies these two jurisdictions into a single uh, legal order. And really, the, the guardian jurist is the person who, in this instance, is, de is, is deciding the exception, mm -hmm. uh, deciding upon the exception. Um, but obviously, on the one hand, this can take a very theocratic direction and be like completely decisionistic, uh, Alice Schmidt. On the other hand, I mean, this is what Hajarian is hoping for, is that the guardian jurist will be made accountable to popular rule. And what we have is a popular re republicanism mm -hmm. where the people make their own um, laws and live in accordance with that. And I'll be familiar to anyone who's read, you know, uh, Machiavelli or, and what. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, the discourses. So, um, or Rousseau for that matter. Mm. Um, so, I mean, in that respect, he kind of sees very much like uh, sort of old sort of Western Republican theories, you know, like like uh, the person who sort of sets the republic on its path. You know, these initial laws, this is the initial system, and now it's now for the people mm. to rule. Obviously, it hasn't panned out that way, but this is obviously still continues to be one of the, the real sort of major points of contention uh, amongst sort of Iranian uh, intellectuals, thinkers, and political movements mm. that are obviously responding and articulating. So it's an active question. It's an so. active, ongoing um, question, and obviously, some people it might be very easily settled. For others, uh, not so much. And it's still, but it's still one which is fluid and alive. Okay, um, I guess sort of, uh, you know, I mean, th there is something interesting there actually. Like in in terms of, um, you know, I I, I I suppose the flip side of this is the. Um, the Mesbah Yazdi stuff. You know, we don't we don't want any Martin Luthers. We don't. You know, we don't so because you know, there is this 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 kind of like <laughs> please, please, please don't say this. Please stay away. But but there is there is I you know I I do think that that, that this is is something that, that then reflects. You know, you know. I, I then look back at the the establishment of kind of European democracies, and, and that you know, I, I, you know, having read you know your work on this stuff, and you know, it's 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 almost much easier to see the kind of theological uh, homologies or bases. Mm -hmm. of this stuff. Do, do, does reading this stuff you know give you a different view on sort of Western politics or Western you know the way in which kind of Western polities are formed? Um, I mean. Uh one of the things that I mean, I'm I'm not going to tread into the sort of medieval <laughs> political theology of Europe. I'm not going to make a fool of myself on that account. But but I mean, one of the I mean, one of the good things I mean, just studying any country in the global south, particularly sort of intellectual uh, and ideological production, is that you do see obviously profound resonances, and more often than not, these sort of um, gestures of Orientalist distancing, where we want to say, oh, we're so we're quite different, and we um, and sort of the footing of our own political regime is so distinct. And and whatnot, you actually see no. There's actually profound similarities, uh, even in the present. And there are echoes, and Iranians are still grappling. I mean, the question of sovereignty, as you know very well, is, uh, and its basis, and how we ought to talk about it, is still very much mysterious and alive, and continues to determine and shape our fates. And Iranians are, are, are very much grappling with that and dealing with that themselves. Okay. okay so last question. Just return to. Uh present and, and a, bit, a bit further down to earth uh, it is obviously we have this kind of thing rumbling on with Trump we have this thing rumbling on from Washington and the securocrats um, it is curious to me in some ways right because you know in, in some ways Trump is the least predictable of American presidents mm -hmm. in that you know you have this this kind of you know very kind of uh, uh, you know familiar downing of a drone um, which was very much a kind of Gulf of Tonkin yeah, <laughs> thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and, and he decides not to order an airstrike, and yet you have this, this kind of war of words and the, you know, the, this, this stuff from you know, Rouhani and, and, and people like that saying, you know, actually, no, we're not going to, to, to give in. Uh, how, what do you make, I mean, just a couple of minutes, what do you make of the, the <laughs> just a couple of minutes, uh, what do you make of the, the kind of Iranian strategy here? What's, what's the rationale? Um, behind mm -hmm. the way in which they're, they're responding to, to this aggression from Washington. Right. Uh, well, I mean, I think they've tried patience. They've given the Europeans you know, plenty of opportunities, one, to kind of rectify the repercussions of these secondary sanctions, which are really
really just uh, essentially tried to, like we've been saying, strangle the um, Iranian economy. Um, and obviously, I mean, we don't just have to recall to Pompeo's 12 demands, where sort of the, the really, the, the historian, Aaron Roman basically said it, that these demands are equivalent to asking just Syrians to just commit suicide, mm. um, which obviously it can't do. Um, and one of the great victories from the Iranian government's perspective of the nuclear accord is that they were they were actually given the right to uh, to enrich uranium to a, a low amount, which was seen as a massive kind of national victory. And all of those years of, all those years of suffering and whatnot had paid off, and it was actually kind of a historical precedent. Um, and this is something which the Trump administration wants to reverse. So I think um, Iran is very careful. I mean, um, they are playing a, a careful, carefully calibrated game, which can obviously could go um, awry, especially when you've got the likes of Bolton and Pompeo, who are just absolutely gunning uh, for, any, you know, for, for conflict and gunning for war. Um, but they're going to sort of play, they're playing chicken in a calibrated fashion. They, they've, they've, they've enriched now, they've got, they've exceeded the stockpile, which actually itself is an outcome of Trump's um, sanctions because they can't export the, the export, the, the, the surplus of uh, low enriched uranium abroad, which they previously could, because uh, this exemption has been scratched by Trump. Um, um, and I mean, just hearing the murmurings, and I hate to read the tea leaves, but just hearing these murmurings from uh, from Rouhani, they might again try and push up the enrichment level as they had previously to 20%. Uh, but we have to, I mean, one has to be very uh, careful. And obviously, we can't really predict what Trump is going to do by, by any measure. Um, um, so that's really that, that's, that's the <laughs> okay. problem. That's so. a good place, I think, for us to leave it. Thank you so much. That has been a really excellent conversation. I'm really Thank glad you. to have had you on. The book is out now. Revolution is, and its discontents. Uh, it's very much worth reading if you can get hold of a copy. Uh, I have been James Butler. This has been Navara FM on Resonance One Hundred Four Point Four FM. I'll be back next week. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos, and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you particularly enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes? And as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navarro Media can only exist thanks to subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navarro Media. Media for a different politics.